If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the Deputy Editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the Section Editor. This is our January 2011 podcast. Happy New Year. Coming up this month, we have... Towards the the middle of the 9th century, Viking activities really pick up and they have a a major effect on the politics of the the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. That was Ryan Lavelle on fighting the Vikings. Uh, A few um, shore people knew much about this forgotten uh, navy of seafarers, even though they supplied much of the nation's fish. That was Rob Robinson on Edwardian fishing fleets. Stand in front of that stone and just think to yourself that that weighed 100 tonnes. It was put up probably somewhere around 5,000 years ago with people without the use of metal tools and implements. And that was Nicholas Snashall on the archaeology of Avonbury. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. Before we start, I have a couple of announcements. First, I'd like to thank everyone who voted for us in the Euro Podcast Awards, where we've been fortunate to win the UK professional category. Secondly, I'd like to tell you that we've rebranded our website. 
you can now find our online presence at www.historyextra.com. BBC History magazine continues to be published 13 times a year, but if you'd like to read the magazine digitally, there is now a digital version available for computers and Apple iPads. You can visit www.historyextra.com forward slash digital for more on that. Well, the start of the Viking era in Britain is traditionally ascribed to the year 793 AD, when the Anglo-Saxon monastery of Lindisfarne was ransacked. In this month's issue, Ryan Lavelle has written about the Anglo-Saxon defence against the Vikings and the experience of warfare in this period. Our editor Dave Musgrove caught up with him. So uh, I'm sat here outside the British Museum on a, on a lovely wintry day. I'm sat with Ryan Lavelle, who's a, a, an Anglo-Saxon and Viking expert. Um, and we're going to have a, a chat about the experience of warfare in the Viking Age. Now, the first thing I think we need to establish is what do we mean by Viking Age? Viking Age is really the period where you start to get activity coming from Scandinavia, raiding activity, and tra- of course trading activity, uh, and that, that basically begins at the very end of the 8th century where the, the first Viking raid in England is in 793, and towards the, the middle of the 9th century Viking activities really pick up and they have a, a major effect on the politics of the, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, in fact uh, knocking out out three of the, the main dynasties in Anglo-Saxon England to, to leave one uh, major dynasty in, in Wessex in the south of England. Yeah. Which takes us on to so, the famous story of Alfred and, and the defence against... Uh, it, does, it does indeed, yes. yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, the book which I've recently published is called Alfred's Wars and uh, effectively by, by the title it highlights the, the fact that Alfred the Great of, of Wessex, King of Wessex in the later 9th century, um, managed to hold on to his kingdom and managed to to undertake some reforms of military systems in in his kingdom and the uh, the the history of of anglo-saxon england until the norman conquest basically reflects the the legacy of some of those military reforms so some of the campaigns that are possible by alfred's successors are are possible because of the the legacy that uh, that alfred had had left and and the uh, the, the sort of military systems that, that had, had, had been uh, developed during the 9th century. And the, uh, the Viking period ends in 1066? The Viking, is that, is yes. That, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> That's a fair assessment, yes, yeah. Um, uh, 1066 is a nice stopping point for the Viking Age because that's the point when uh, Harold Hardrada, the uh, the King of Norway, was killed at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Yeah. So, uh, in in British history, we often like our our kind of moments in history, and 1066 is a moment in history not just because of the Norman Conquest, but because the the last major Viking uh, leader, the last significant Viking king, is is killed in battle. Yeah. But there are periods of peace uh, in the uh, in, in the period from the 9th to the 11th centuries. Uh, the, it's it's not a period where everybody is at war all the time. There are some major campaigns. Uh, we we get the impression from uh, from from some sources like uh, sources on on uh, like legal sources that there are there are what could, what we could call feuding taking place in in. Yeah. in, in in some places, so sort of private warfare uh, undertaken by by local lords, for example. So there are there is uh, there are sort of degrees of violence, but it's I, 
I wouldn't say that uh, that it, it it's a complete picture. I wouldn't say it's a picture of of warfare uh, for. You know, for a, for a whole 250-year uh, period across across the British Isles, but there are some some very nasty things uh, that, that that seem to happen during this period. Is it a notably more violent period than than other times, or is it is that just something that you can't even get in your head from the from the association with the word Viking? I think it is something that we get in our head from the association of the, the word Viking. The Viking activities of the 9th century and the Viking activities in the late 10th and early 11th centuries when some, some major invasions, effectively invasions, are, are, uh, are launched, um, those activities are, are pretty pretty violent and, and, and make a, and have a have a big political impact. So that's the that's the, the, the sort of significance of, of where Vikings come into British history uh, during the early Middle Ages. So was was the um, was the fighting at the time carried out by the upper classes? Oh, uh, warfare is an aristocratic activity in that period. Uh, status comes from the ability to uh, to, to prove oneself in war. It, it, it comes from the, the, the holding of weapons. It, it comes from the uh, the ability to uh, to hold land as well, but uh, often that that land holding might be associated with with that that kind of status as a as a as a noble who's who's capable of fighting in, in warfare as well. Uh, so the the kind of front end of of combat is is one which is is undertaken by uh, the the better off people because the equipment the equipment that is needed to take part in a battle is is expensive uh, that doesn't mean to say that uh, the, the sort of lower classes for, for want of a better term that doesn't mean to say that the, the ordinary people uh, didn't necessarily participate in the in the actual combat combat side of things but I, I suspect that would be a small number of people maybe maybe uh, Carrying bows and arrows, or, you know, with with uh, sort of minor roles in the in the battlefields. Yeah. Uh, warfare in this period, uh, as it is in many historical periods, is about the the assertion of status. It's about the assertion of masculine status as yeah. well. So, so for the most part, it would have been the sort of the big men of society who could afford the kit to go and stand on the battlefield and, and hit each other. Effectively, yes, yeah. yes. I don't know whether they are all necessarily. Uh, Actually, fighting per se, and 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 actually hitting each other, but uh, but actually being seen to be able to hit each other and being seen to take part in a military campaign, I think is is one of the significant. So, so, so things. really, it's a big status thing for these people. They've got to show show that they have have the money and to show willing to actually go and stand on the battlefield. That's right. Yes, the the. They need to show that that ability to to take part. And is that, in, in the piece you've written for the magazine, um, you, you talk a little about sort of the ritual side of battles and how there may have been certain elements of battle that had to you know that, that, that had to be fulfilled. And you talk specifically about this idea about um, the the Anglo-Saxons not fighting on horseback um, because they wanted to stand on the battlefield and 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 you know and say this is I am not moving from here. So is, are, are there rituals that need to be fulfilled for for battles at this time? 
Yes, I, I get that impression. Um, the the notion of fighting on foot in particular occasions might be might be when the occasion demands it, when when a, a show of resistance needs to be needs to be made, like at the famous Battle of Molden in 991, yeah. or uh, indeed at the Battle of Hastings as well, where there's that that sense of, of resistance against the the invader. Um, it's very difficult to see how rituals might be undertaken on the battlefield because the the evidence for the battlefield itself and, and conduct on the battlefield is is limited. Uh, but things like prayer before a battle are, are important, uh, as uh, the the life of King Alfred, uh, and the, the the contemporary ninth century life of King Alfred. Uh, makes evidence in in the description of the Battle of Ashdown. In, also, things like the the, the a group of Vikings seizing uh, seizing the assembly point at uh, Skutshamanob in 1006 uh, indicates that particular places in the landscape had a had a meaning, and that meaning of the the landscape, that meaning of the control of landscape, might be con- might be sort of conferred upon. Uh, conduct in a battle and the ability to to win a battle is is linked to that control of a landscape yeah uh so i think things like uh negotiation before a battle and the the shouting of insults uh i i think there the battle of Molden poem probably hits upon some some historical reality there it hits right. upon some some historical values some expected values within society yeah. uh and that that sort of Ging up of, of both sides, the, the the sort of gathering of uh, the the gathering of bravery, the gathering of, of of the sense of strength, the sense of group identity is, is part of that that yeah. ritual of, of battle. Of course, the Vikings weren't pagans in the way that these uh, the Scandinavian sagas sort of have the the first spear being thrown dedicated to Odin yeah. uh, and. Uh, you know issues like that in the saga descriptions of battle, but we, we we might expect sort of similar group activities being being undertaken in order to in order to, to sort of build a group's cohesion before they actually uh, sort of make the make the push into the actual violence of, of battle. So so am I right in, in getting a picture in my head of uh, of Anglo-Saxons assembled on one side of a field and Vikings on the other, and and then before any 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 blood is is shed, there's a lot of Fairly fearsome heckling. Is that is that what is that, is that the sort of is that a sort of <laughs> yeah level yeah I think I think you know more than more than fearsome heckling. I, I, you know, in an oral society, the, uh, the the shouting of insults could possibly actually be an artistic medium. You right, could, uh, you could yeah. suggest as well. Uh, but I mean that that's that's speculation. But uh, but I think the you know the the notion of of the the two sides. Uh, cheering each other on, cheering themselves on rather yeah. uh, before the battle, and, and heckling the other side. Yes, I, yeah. I think that that's an entirely plausible scenario for for the period. Well, that leads on to another point, which has always struck me as as quite odd about this period. Is you kind of you, you tend to see the, the English, the Anglo-Saxons, as as victims and losers in the, in this. They always seem to be on the on the on the on the wrong end of a of a beating. Now. In other senses, they, they don't seem like particularly retiring, non-warlike sort of folks. So, is that is that a fallacy? Were is that were they actually more evenly matched than we tend to think, or were they just not up for the fight with the Vikings? And if so, why? I get the impression that they're evenly matched at some points in the uh, the ninth, tenth, eleventh centuries. Uh, for example, during the the wars of uh, Athelstan, the, the basically. 
the the first king of England, effectively, yeah. is, is Athelstan. And, uh, and during those wars, the, the Anglo-Saxons are, are going from cam- one successful campaign to the, the next, uh, fighting the, the Northumbrian uh, Viking dynasty, uh, fighting the, the Kingdom of the Scots, uh, and, and uh, the... The warriors who had taken part in that, those campaigns were probably motivated by the by the uh, ability to to gain uh, wealth, to gain booty, mm. uh, effectively from from those successful campaigns. And Athelstan's campaigns had led on from campaigns during the the reign of his father, during the the reign of uh, Edward the Elder mm. and Edward the Elder's sister, uh, Athelflaed of the Mercians, and. Uh, there'd been some very successful campaigns there as well. So broadly speaking, for the first half of the 10th century, there there are some very successful, aggressive campaigns undertaken against the the neighbours of a a largely West Saxon-dominated English kingdom. Um, Now, during the the reign of uh, Edgar, Edgar the Peaceable, as he's come to be known, there's a period where, where basically there are no major campaigns. There's a very large English fleet, which may well have been manned in part by Scandinavians who were paid for with English money. Uh-huh. And, and that period of peace may well have, have led to a, a generation of, of warriors who, who may have been confident when they're seeing off a few Viking raids in the early years of Ethelred's reign, may even have been very confident at the beginning of the Battle of Molden in 991 as well. Uh, but possibly their military abilities, because they, they may not have had the same experience, may not have been quite up to it. Um, however, that being said, the, uh, the Welsh Annals, the Annales Cambriae, record a number of English incursions into Wales. So during, during periods of apparent peace, there are, there, are, there are still Anglo-Saxon raiding activities in Wales as well. So right. small-scale warfare still, still carries on. Uh, but whether that's quite enough to, to sort of see off uh, Viking, you know, Viking fleets who have, have fought together and lived together for, uh, you know, Viking Viking ships crews who've, who've been together for for long periods. Whether that's quite enough to actually be able to to match those, might be might be questionable. That moves on to another point, which you touch on in the piece that you've written for the magazine, which is why the English didn't take the fight to the Vikings, why they didn't get in their ships and sail to Scandinavia and sock it to them there. Yeah. Why not? I often wonder about that, actually. I think it's because the Vikings, although we call them the Vikings as a, as a sort of single group, yep. there, is, there may be a group identity on, on one level, but on another level in terms of personal allegiances, in terms of where the Vikings had, had come from, they, they weren't a single unified group. Uh, so this was something that uh, that Charlemagne had discovered in in, in going into Saxony yeah. in the eighth century. That uh, that basically you get small groups of, of of effectively tribal groupings, and it's very difficult to to actually uh, take over an entire territory and subjugate an entire territory. Now the Saxons were neighbours of the Franks who, over whom Charlemagne ruled. The Vikings from uh, modern day Denmark, Sweden, Norway uh, were were basically. Um, a, a distance across the North Sea from from the English, so yeah. it, it's not like the uh, it's not like the, the not like Alfred or Ethelred could have gathered together a, a very large army and, and, and gone to Oslo and, and, and sort of and, and taken over a large territory as a result of that. Uh, that said, 
the the fight is taken to the Vikings. It's taken to the Vikings in terms of the uh, the Kingdom of York and the, 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 that was established in the late ninth century in Northumbria, yeah. uh, which was effectively an Anglo-Scandinavian kingdom. And, and, uh, and just in conclusion, do the, do the Vikings at any point become more of a soft touch as the period goes on? Do they lose any of their of their sort of warlike <laughs> edge? I mean, that's one of the theories, isn't it? They they come, they settle down, and and they decide that you know they quite like it, and they and they don't want to. Be, be fighting all the time. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say how, how far the, the people that we we say are Vikings in, in Britain were actually necessarily of, of Scandinavian descent. Now, archaeologists are, uh, are, are, are much more into this, these kinds of debates than, than I'm able to, to, to talk about. And, uh, but effectively, some of those territories that, that become Viking kingdoms very quickly take up the uh, they take up the habits of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, so they they then become effectively I, I wouldn't say sedentary kingdoms, but they they become uh, established kingdoms in the in the in the manner of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Uh, so, well, I've just been saying that the 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 English in the uh, in the Anglo-Saxon period. Well, many of the English aristocrats in the uh, the Anglo-Saxon period have a warlike edge. So, to, to say that Vikings would lose their warlike edge, I think, would be to to do them a, a disservice, really. Ryan Lavelle is a lecturer at Winchester University. You can read his feature in the January issue. His book, Alfred's Wars: Sources and Interpretations of Anglo-Saxon Warfare in the Viking Age, is published by Boydell. In 2009, a collection of tinted photographs depicting life on the North Sea boxing fleets was discovered at a house sale in London. The unique images give a rare insight into the harsh and often treacherous conditions experienced by 19th century trawlermen who spent weeks at sea without even basic amenities. I spoke to Rob Robinson, a lecturer at the Maritime Historical Studies Centre at the University of Hull, about these remarkable men and found out how a small fleet of English trawlers almost caused a war with Russia in 1904. So, Rob, what were the boxing fleets and why have they become a focus of study for you? The boxing fleets were um, a, a collection or a fleet that worked far out in the North Sea. When they caught the fish, these trawlers, they, 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 they packed them in boxes on board uh, the trawlers and then ferried them uh, across to fast steam cutters, which took them to shore. Um, that's why they got the name Boxing Fleet. They were different from an ordinary trawler in the fact that they would stay out on the fishing grounds for weeks and weeks um, and just transfer their fish um, went every day to, to one of these cutters, which would take it in, in shore, uh, whereas a, an ordinary trawler would, would return to, uh, to shore perhaps every week uh, from the North Sea. One of the reasons I really got engaged and interested in this particular fleet in the first place was because both my grandfather and great-grandfather, who were fishermen, both worked on these boxing fleets. And I've been able to find out a great deal more about their sort of life and work. What in particular uh, interests you about the fleets? Well, what was particularly interesting in my work was the sort of fascinating nature of the, the work at, at sea. They were forgotten people, these, who, who worked these fleets. They, they, um, they worked far from shore. They were out of sight of land. People didn't know what was going on. They worked in the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, they, would, they would be trawling almost relentlessly whenever weather conditions permitted, uh, and, and that was most of the time, really, because they could trawl in bad weather. Uh, and then they had to deal with the fish every day, and, and the most perilous job of all was to transfer the fish 
from the trawlers across to the um, to, to the cutters. You had to do this in an open rowing boat in all sorts of weathers uh, and carry the boxes. And then when you got alongside the cutter, one of your crew had to jump on board, regardless of weather conditions, and then help with the transfer of the fish. So it was an incredibly difficult and hazardous job. And, and many people knew very little about it. And what sort of luxuries would they have had at sea? Luxuries? Uh, very few, really. Um, the, the meals were very basic. I mean, obviously, you ate quite a lot of fish. Uh, <laughs> but another sort of regular thing that they would eat at sea would be uh, they would take lumps of, um, of salt beef with them. And quite often, they would towel these behind the trawler for a few days to help reduce the amount of salt in the beef. So meals were basic. There was lots of very uh, substantial food in terms of uh, things that carbohydrate and like that would give them energy, but nothing fancy nothing fancy at all. And the living conditions were, were pretty primitive as well. Was anything done to make life easier and more enjoyable for them? Uh, a few um, shore people knew much about this forgotten uh, navy of seafarers, even though they supplied much of the nation's fish. But one day, uh, a chap called William Mather, um, who sailed out of London to visit these fleets, when he got there, he was shocked by the conditions that they worked under. Uh, he visited several of the trawlers, saw people. He realised that quite often people got injured at sea. They had no treatment or anything like that to help them out. Uh, and when he came back to land, he was fired up with a desire to help them. And he formed the Mission for Deep Sea Fishermen, which later became Royal and Nationals. And today we still have the Royal National Mission for Deep Sea Fishermen. And in those days, its job was to help the, the boxing fleet. They arranged for a, a hospital ship to, to sail amongst the fleet, ministering to uh, the sick and the injured, uh, and help to supply them with basic commodities. Luxury in those days was tobacco. No drink at sea. Um, if, if, uh, but um, they could get books, and they could have somewhere to meet, and they occasionally would get treated in other ways, and they had hospital facilities. What sort of men would have made up the crews? What sort of hierarchy was there on board the ship? Well, typically there were about 10 men in these boxing fleet crews. There would be a skipper. He was a, a man who had all the skills um, of you know, being able to manage a group of men, um, navigate a ship, but he also had the skills of, of being a hunter. He knew where to look for fish. He knew the habits of the fish, etc. So he he was the chief man on board. Below him was the mate, uh, and the mate had an important job. Uh, he 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 looked after the crew and a lot of the work on the deck as well. There would be a man called a boatswain. Then there would be deckhands. There would be a cook. But equally important in the days of steam trawlers, there was the engineer and the trimmers, and that was a particular job. If you were a fireman trimmer. You had the job of stoking the furnaces of the uh, of the steam engine um, during a typical trip of five weeks away uh, at sea. You might be shoveling 180 tons of coal. Uh, all of that below deck. Uh, you would be roasting uh, from the conditions you were working in. But if you came up above deck, often you'd be freezing in, the, in any sort of winter weather. So it was a very difficult job for all concerned. Um, and and the, the, the important thing is, I suppose, is that despite these difficulties, they managed to take large quantities of fish and, in fact, keep particularly uh, the Billingsgate market fed with a lot of its fresh fish on a daily basis. Um, you mentioned in your feature that the boxing fleets played an important role in times of war. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, sure. The, the role of fishermen in wartime has been greatly neglected. When the First World War came about, many people thought it would result in, at sea at least, in a major battle between the dreadnoughts um, of both sides, the huge battleships. Uh, and of course, there was a battle of Jutland, but people are still arguing about who won that battle and what the outcome was. The vessels that were out there day after day, week after week, uh, sweeping the mines from the sea lanes to keep the shipping lanes to Britain open, um, and many of the vessels on patrol service duties against the uh, U-boats, these were fishing vessels, often manned by fishermen, and they had an extremely difficult job. Uh, they were armed with very um, limited weapons, but they had to sweep the mines from the sea. And this was a particularly difficult job because, of course, to sweep mines, you had to enter the minefield uh, and, and cut the mines free from the bottom and then destroy them. So an incredibly difficult job in the First World War. Many of the auto handlers um, from the um, boxing fleets uh, provided a great job in terms of keeping our sea lanes open and keeping Britain in the war. And their role has often been for- forgotten. I mean, you mentioned in the piece one particular incident with the Russian forces. Can you tell us maybe that story? Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the most spectacular peacetime events almost led to a war. <laughs> in 1904, on the eve of the 99th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, warships of the Russian Baltic fleet opened fire on one of these uh, boxing fleets far out in the North Sea. The attack was totally unprovoked. Um, these were a group of peaceful, unarmed vessels going about the normal business. Mm-hmm. Um, why did the Russians attack them? Well, the Russians were at that time at war with the Japanese, and um, they were sending their Baltic fleet all the way, way around to the Pacific to take on the Japanese. Uh, for some reason, um, when they came across this fleet of trawlers in the North Sea, they mistook them for Japanese torpedo boats and opened fire. <laughs> With a, it was an enormous uh, diplomatic incident. Mm. It nearly led to a war. And I, I assume quite a few people were injured during the event. Well, the, the, I don't think the Russians could have been that good at the firepower in those yes. days because although they fired on the trawlers for, for 20 minutes, only one um, of the trawlers were sunk. Three of the crew uh, succumbed to their injuries. But um, the, the event itself, you know, the affront to um, British naval pride was such that uh, it did for a moment seem that we would be at war with the Russians. In fact, we didn't. And the Russians uh, continued their tortuous journey east. Not surprisingly, that Russian fleet was then destroyed by Admiral Tojo uh, at the Battle of Tsushima um, many months later. OK, I mean, the images that you have included in the feature are really quite remarkable. I mean, partly for their historical value, but also from a photographical point of view. Um, what do you know about the pictures and their creator? Well, w- w- one of the most interesting things about the pictures themselves, which were acquired by James Morley at an auction, was the fact that they were a collection. They were quite clearly um, somebody who'd gone out to the boxing fleet mm. and had taken all these images and then had spent a, a great deal of time uh, tinting them. And whoever did that, whoever gave them the colour, had a remarkable eye for the nature of the sea uh, and the time uh, when, when, he was, when he was out there with the fleets. Um, and we were particularly intrigued by these. A lot of them were quite informal, but different to your normal Edwardian um, uh, sort of photograph mm. of, of working people. And so we were quite keen to find out much more about them. And thanks to the help of Skipper Ken Knox, uh, an acquaintance man, next to all of them, we managed to track these down. We found uh, that some of them had been used in 
the Toil of the Deep magazine, which again is a Mission for Deep Sea Fisherman's magazine. Mm-hmm. And what we believe happened is this chap, um, we found he was called S.A. Davy, but we don't know much more about him personally. But what he must have done was sail from London, from Billingsgate, London, one of the steam cutters, out to the fleet. He would have only had one of those old-fashioned box cameras. Mm-hmm. And he took this remarkable set of images, brought them back, Presumably coloured them in, and I would imagine probably used them for uh, lectures as a magic lantern show. Um, and then, of course, over time, they would be forgotten, left in a box, and hence, many, many years, they came up for auction. Thank goodness they were found. <laughs> They're remarkable, and it was uh, really good that they were found, because yeah. th- these are unusual. You don't get that depth of... Um, image of what's going on with the boxing fleets in any other way at that time. What actually happened to the boxing fleets? Well, the boxing fleets continued to work down to the, to the First World War. During the First World War, as we said, uh, they were, many of the vessels were in action um, against Germany and German vessels, and, and quite a few of them were lost during the war. After the war, the, the owners of the, the, the four boxing fleets that had been before the war regrouped them into two fleets. But by the interwar period, the North Sea uh, fish stocks were declining. They weren't making the yields that they were making before the war. And many of the larger trawler owners were also interested in what's called distant water trawling. That would mean sending vessels off to Iceland or to the Faroe Islands. So they never reinvested in the boxing fleets. They kept the fleets going themselves until um, 1936. And then the final boxing fleets were, were wound up and sold off in that year. It's not wasn't quite the end of the boxing fleets. Some of the vessels went on to do other work, and one of them still survives to this day. The steam trawler Viola, which lies at Vicon in South Georgia, it's now known as the Dias, and it really has had a remarkable life because it was engaged in the sinking of two U-boats. It later was sold off uh, to Norwegian owners and ended up in the South Atlantic, where apart from being a, a seal hunting ship was used for exploration for over 40 years and and it still survives as I say to this day. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Rob Robinson on 19th century boxing fleets. You can read Rob's feature in our January issue, as well as take a closer look at some of the remarkable images. His new book, Far Horizons, From Hull to the Ends of the Earth, is out now. Now for the last interview. This month, the BBC is showing its landmark series, A History of Ancient Britain. With that in mind, Dave made the trip to the Neolithic Monument of Averbury in Wiltshire to discuss the story of the place with National Trust archaeologist Nicholas Nashall. We're sat uh, in, the, in the courtyard of the, uh, of the museum part of Avebury on a lovely November day, and not too many people about, so it's, um, it's, 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 you know, it's quite surprising. I guess in summer it gets, it gets a bit busy here. It does, yes, we can be absolutely heaving. We do get hundreds of thousands of visitors every yeah. year here. And at this time of year, um, it does tend to quiet down a little. And people come presumably because... Well, it's a world, world heritage site, so it's, 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 it's pretty famous and people know that it's... Absolutely. Avebury's one of those places that people from all across the globe will visit, partially because of the world heritage site status and partially because I think people are quite aware of the, the, um, the vast size of the monument here. We've got the, the huge henge which partially encloses a modern village and we also have the largest prehistoric stone circle in the world. So let's talk about that. So we've got the henge and, and the stone circle, as you say, yeah. and lots of other stuff as well. Um, so we've got this massive big henge, and as you drive into the village, that's, that's the first thing you see with, the, with this enormous big big earthwork in front of you. Um, and then we've got the stone circle within that and lots of stone rows and things emanating from it. Um, so which comes first, the henge or the stones inside? Um, as far as we're aware, one of the earliest parts of the, the monuments at Avebury itself, um, there's a very small version of the very large bank that you see today, which runs around on the same footprint, and that seems to be one of the earliest parts of the site. And we think, by analogy with other sites, that's probably constructed around about 3000 BC. But we've learned recently from some uh, works to uh, the what's known as the backstone of the cove, which is part of one of the central settings of the site, in what's known as the northern inner circle, that the largest stone there, um, which weighs um, about 100 tonnes, so it's the, the largest standing stone still standing in the British Isles, right. um, in terms of its weight, mm-hmm. that is. Um, that, we think, was probably put up uh, sometime centering around those years, about 3000 BC again. So again, that could be a very early component. But much of the stone circles do seem to have been put up probably around about 2600 BC. Okay. It's a little later. Perhaps we ought to clarify what a henge is. Um, uh, it's it's a, a, an archaeological construct, isn't it? It's, 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 it's something that archaeologists talk about. It's not necessarily something that, that people in prehistory would have necessarily talked about. So what, 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 does, what does an archaeologist understand by a henge? Well, an arche- for an archaeologist, um, a henge is a, a, a circular or a subcircular monument in plan. They can have anywhere between one and four entrances. Um, The important thing about a henge is that you have a bank, but you have a ditch inside it. 
So that means that essentially um, it's not a defensive earthwork. If we think of something like Roman forts or Iron Age hill forts, you would expect to find a bank with a ditch or ditches outside of it. That makes much more sense for defence. But with a henge, it's a sort of act of enclosing rather than um, something to defend from the outside. Mm. And henges aren't necessarily associated with stone circles. They can be, but archaeologists see them as two separate monuments that sometimes come together. Absolutely. I think confusion sometimes arises because uh, of the name of Stonehenge, Mm. um, which, curiously enough, isn't really a henge monument at all. Um, But they are indeed two separate things, and as you say, they do sometimes come together. Um, They occur often at around about the same time. So you're looking with henge monuments, they start to be constructed around about 3000 BC. Uh, But we do know some of the later ones go on um, into the Bronze Age in terms of their construction. Um, As we learn more about henges from various sites, it seems that henges are involved more with the idea of closing off a special space or memorialising an effort or works that have gone on before. So sometimes that might be stone circles or sometimes in the case of um, the recent discoveries that the Stonehenge Riverside project have made down at Durrington Walls, that might be a part or parts of um, the village in that case that was used by the workers who were constructing the, the sarsen phases of Stonehenge. So it's, if you like, memorialising or monumentalising and setting aside something that's special or powerful. Mm. And, and, and when they're enclosing these areas or trying to set aside these areas for, for, for whatever they're trying to do, um, there's, there's an idea that perhaps sometimes it was, it was the act of actually making the boundary rather than then what happened next that was the important thing. Do you, do you stand with that? Um, I certainly think it's true that the enormous effort, I mean millions of person hours in the construction of some of these, these larger henge um, monuments um, would have gone into their construction of digging of the ditches. And bearing in mind that when people were making these things, they, they were using stone tools and organic materials, antler picks. Um, so the effort that went into them must have been related to the importance of the sites themselves. I certainly think um, that, that that much is true. So in that sense, the digging of the boundaries is important. But I do think that the bounding off of the areas as well um, probably has a significance to it. So what we've got at the moment is a quite, quite a substantial earthwork and then quite a substantial ditch. But I guess, given the course of time, it's changed from its, how it was originally. It would have been a much steeper-sided ditch and perhaps much, much more... Uh, yes daunting for people looking at it very much so when when people look at the uh, the ditch of the Avery Henge today it it looks pretty magnificent pretty huge Uh, but in actual fact we know that uh, from Harold St George Gray's excavations as much as anybody else in the early years of the 20th century um, he put sections through the ditch and what he found was that in places these things are twice as deep again as they appear today so you're looking at something up to about nine meters in depth probably absolutely enormous and as you say much straighter in the sides because over the years um, what has happened is that the sides of the ditch have obviously eroded away with time and uh, human beings what they are is we've got a village that grew up in within part of the uh, the henge what happens is that people start throwing their rubbish into the henge ditches so they begin to fill up essentially as a sort of midden site or a a, a medieval landfill if yep. you like okay <laughs> okay and so, so then on to the stone so we've got the, the, this large collection of stones um, in and around here now uh, am I right in thinking that most of these stones, or all of these stones, are from around here? They haven't been transported any great distance. That's right. The um, the Marlborough Downs and the area around here um, 
has been uh, in the past, in the post-medieval period, was a centre for what was known as the um, the sarsen-breaking industry. Mm. And the sarsens are these huge grey stones, which are what our stone circles and our stone avenues here are made of. And in fact, it's also what the um, the great trilithons at Stonehenge are constructed of as well. Um, but we know that prior to this sarsen-breaking industry, there were much more extensive sarsen fields all over the Marlborough Downs. And you can still see some of them today at places like um, Lockeridge Dean, just down near the modern A4, and up on Fifield and Overton Downs today, just a short distance from the Henge itself. Yeah, so there were actually, so it would have been that the land would have been littered with stones, it basically. It would have been, it would have been, yes. I think they would have been sort of all over the landscape, including, in some cases, the area immediately around where the... And the Henge, and particularly the West Kennet Avenue, is today. So, what, when a when a, a, a an average visitor comes here, someone who hasn't studied prehistory to any great depth comes here, what can they what can they hope to sort of understand about the people who made these sites by by just visiting and, and wandering around? What can what can they what can they really learn? We're very lucky that we have the museum that relates to the sites themselves, right here in the middle of the landscape, and in fact, part of the museum, the Barn Gallery, of the museum is actually cut into the back of the um, Henge Bank, so it's literally part of the monuments. What that means is that if you want to come here and really appreciate uh, these monuments and get a basic understanding of how things work, I would say the best place to start is to look in um, our museum galleries, which have, obviously, we have the artefacts here, which are on display, but we also have sort of um, interactive presentations um, and a display showing you the development of both the landscape through time and the work of those who've come before people like me who were working as archaeologists and antiquaries to try and understand the place. Mm. So if you start there, I think you can get a really good understanding of, of what this whole landscape is about because, of course, it goes far beyond the Henge and Stone Circles itself. We have Windmill Hill, as you say, the Causeway Enclosure. We've got West Kennet Long Barrow, the Chambered Tomb, which is roughly the same date as Windmill Hill. We've got the West Kennet um, Avenue, as you say. We have the Sanctuary. But we also have um, hundreds of barrows in this landscape. So um, just the portion that the National Trust looks after, just to give you a, an idea, um, we have um, 34 different sets of scheduled monuments. Um, and we look after 1,600 acres, and we care for a, just a little under a third, probably, of the World Heritage Site, of this half of the World Heritage Site, because we're jointly inscribed with Stonehenge. Hmm. We also look after parts of the Stonehenge landscape as well. So it does, the archaeology extends over a, a huge area, and we shouldn't forget as well, as, as well as all this wonderful prehistory that we have here, one of the glories of Avebury is that, if you like, our timeline extends right through from earliest prehistory virtually into the Roman and the Saxon periods. We have a very important early Saxon settlement here. We've got Saxon activity um, in the church as well. So we get an awful lot of time depth. We do a lot of time at Avebury. Mm. Okay, so just to finish up, um, as, as someone who works here, comes here every day, what, what would you suggest that someone visiting here should most, you know, should, should, should make a beeline for? What should, they, what should they have a look at and really try and enjoy and understand? Um, I would definitely say come to the museum because then you're able to, to make your own choices um, about it and learn, I think you gain a lot by learning a little bit more about the place. But if you want to um, come and be awed and impressed then I would suggest you make your way to the Cove Stone, mm. stand in front of that stone and just think to yourself that that weighed 100 tonnes. It was put up probably somewhere around 5,000 years ago with people without the use of metal tools and implements. And it's been calculated in the past that some of our more average stones 
um, of about 30 to 40 tonnes. It took 200 people to book up, to put up. So just wonder for a moment how many people and how much effort it took to put up that huge backstone. The National Trust manages the World Heritage Site of Averbury and you can get more information about visiting it at www.nationaltrust.org.uk. The BBC Two series, A History of Ancient Britain, presented by Neil Oliver, is showing this month. And we have a feature on Neolithic stone circles and henges in the January issue of BBC History magazine. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at www.historyextra.com. Well, that's it for January. Next month we have Simon Sabagmontefiore on Jerusalem, a look at the life of Walter Raleigh and a review of the impact of the Black Death on medieval Britain.